needs us today. That's why we're here. Amen. You may be seated in the house of God. How many love Jesus this morning? Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going through a sermon series on the book of Matthew. I heard that Griselda did an amazing job. Did you enjoy her last week? I listened to both services. I've heard great feedback. I hope that you were blessed by her as well. Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes is where Jesus' teachings really come alive and make Christianity what we know it to be. This is like the bread and butter of Christ's message. So I had a choice to whether or not break down all of these messages and make them individual sermons or just go through chapter by chapter as I've been doing. I decided to go chapter by chapter. So we're going to go through the entire lesson of chapter 5 today, which is many, many, many lessons. But here's the thing. As you go to the notes, you'll see that I have preached the book of Matthew before just this part. Each one of the eight Beatitudes, eight sermons, and the rest of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, 17 sermons. So if you like what you're hearing today or you have questions about it, go to the website and you will see 25 messages on chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Matthew. Today's message is be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you all ready? All right, let's do it. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is talking from a mountainside. Uh, Matthew probably gathered all the teachings together of Jesus that he had taught at various times and put it into this sermon right here. Uh, Luke writes it a little bit differently because Jesus was a traveling preacher and spoke differently as he was in different places. Never see the differences in the gospel between like Luke's Beatitudes or Matthew's Beatitudes as a contrast contradiction, see them as a compliment. In other words, there used to be a day when they would have transparencies with the light projectors. Does anybody remember that? And they would put it on the projector and it would go up. Does anybody remember? Okay. And let's say you were in an anatomy class and, and science class. They would put like first the body and then they would put on top of that the skeletal system and then they could take it away and then the nervous system. You get, you get the illustration there. When you read the gospels, it's being layered and it's being complex and not contradictory, complimentary. And so as I am a preacher, I relate to Jesus because when I tell my testimony, I tell it differently depending on where I'm at. I'm not contradicting myself. I'm just emphasizing different points. If it's Mother's Day, I'm emphasizing what my mother did. If it's Father's Day, I'm emphasizing what my father did. Sometimes I tell my testimony, never mention my father. Nobody thinks my dad was saved or was in my life at that time. My dad played a crucial role in salvation, but I'm focusing on my mom. Okay, And so when we look at the Gospels, these are Jesus' sermons condensed into three chapters. It could have been what he did at this one time and kept people there for about three days, and that's how they got hungry and needed him, him to feed them. Or Matthew could have taken the liberty by the Holy Spirit to pull out multiple times Jesus was on a mountainside and then put them together as the example of this is how Jesus taught. Just to give you an understanding, if we took all the red letters of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and combined them, those are the amount of words an average man speaks a day. 
Jesus was speaking for three and a half years. That doesn't give us the understanding maybe there's hidden teachings that we got to go find. Like, what else was he talking about? No, but what it tells us is that he must have been repeating himself over and over and over again, and that what the gospel writers are doing are simply taking the main parts of the message and condensing them for us. So remember, all red letters of the gospels, you speak in one day. In one day, we have the amount of Jesus' words in one day, and yet he lived three and a half years. So that's why the Gospels will emphasize different things. They're talking about the different aspects of Jesus' teachings. That's why somebody like Matthew will condense them all together to three chapters, calling it the Sermon on the Mount. However we look at it, we can trust the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, and what is spoken here is life-changing. Life-changing. Are you getting that? Okay, let's go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. We saw in chapter 4 that he called disciples. Jesus was about discipleship. I hope that you understood my message when I was here last, that we are about discipleship. It's not just getting you here. It's not just having an attendance here. It's not a show for us. It's not a performance. I want to know, do you want to be a disciple? Do you want to do what we put on this screen? If you don't want to do that, we invite you to another church. Do you understand that? We'll give you three brochures to New Life Covenant, Chicago Tabernacle, and Belmont Assembly of God. Take your pick and go. Are you listening? Because here we do discipleship. That's what we do here. We love those other ministries. Whether they do it or not, that's between them and the Lord. I'm not in their business. I'm just saying we'll invite you to find another church. It is not about popularity here or trying to grow a big church so that I can be a big I and you can be a little you. We will be a great big church. We will be a large ministry, but it will be built differently. When you look at a poodle and you look at a baby Rottweiler, they look about the same size. But give them enough time and you'll see the difference of the Rottweiler. I can grow mice and you can do that quickly or we can grow an elephant. Which one do you want to be, a mouse or an elephant? Mice, they multiply quickly and fast, and they're little vermins, and they get in every place. You can multiply mice all day long, but it takes time to build an elephant. You see, God is building a church based on disciples. I love you, and I wish you not to go. If you want to know my desire, I want you to stay. And everyone that's taken our invitation and has gone to other churches, that, that, that's not something I get excited about. I'm not happy that they leave in that sense. But I'm here to tell you that I have to be like Jesus and make disciples. And part of making disciples is teaching them the things of Jesus. And if we don't go through the teachings of Jesus, and all I'm doing is telling you bedtime stories or make-believe, then what have I done for you? Half the time, the preacher adds make-believe to the sermons. And I don't understand that. The sermon, of the, script, the sermon should come from the Scripture. We shouldn't confuse it with make-believe. And I know that sometimes pastors want to use movie clips. I do that sometimes. But the idea is the Scripture doesn't need anything else for it to be true. I don't need a scientist to prove the Bible is right. The Bible is right, and the scientist needs to learn that. I can show you a scientist that agrees with the Bible, but that doesn't make it more true. It's true because God said it's true. 
And I can show you that the world of sociology agrees with the teachings we're going to learn here about doing unto others as you want done to yourself and being humble and all these things. But I don't care if that's in trend today because it would be true whether or not they they want to follow these teachings or whether or not we lived in Nazi Germany and they didn't want to follow the teachings. It doesn't matter what culture says. It's true regardless of what they say. And so... Jesus is talking to disciples. We cannot miss that. The next thing that we cannot miss is that everything he's going to hit on was everything they were dealing with in that culture. He's going to talk about divorce. Guess what they were dealing with? Divorce. He's going to talk about lust. Guess what they were dealing with? Lust. He's going to talk about keeping your word and not trying to swear on stuff to get people to believe you. Guess what they were dealing with? Breaking their word. He's going to talk about stuff that's in their culture and in their time. So anybody that thinks we shouldn't talk to disciples about living a moral life or that we should just tell everybody just how to get along and not try to be controversial in our morality doesn't understand Jesus. Jesus was convicting in these messages you're about ready to hear. And then here's another thing that I hear a lot is, well, he doesn't say anything about homosexuality or abortion and some of the things were going on at that time. The Romans were homosexual and they were killing their children, infanticide. Do you know why he doesn't have to say that here? Because in the Jewish Jewish faith, that wasn't a problem. The Jewish people were not homosexual. They would have been stoned for that. They were not killing their children. They would have been stoned for that. He's dealing directly with the issues they deal with. And so guess what? When we get to those issues, that's going to be like us. Because today, if you're a part of this church, you already know homosexuality is a sin. You already know abortion is a sin. So my question is going to be, do you still cuss when you get angry? Because that's what Jesus is talking about. Do you still lust after a woman or a man when they walk by? Because that's what Jesus is talking about. Are you still saying you're going to commit to something and you don't do it? Because that's what Jesus is talking about. So in actuality, this wasn't a message for the world to try to convict them of all the garbage they were doing. This is a message for his disciples. And of course, if I can't lust after a woman, I can't lust after a man. Are you listening to me? And of course, if I can't even cuss you out, I can't kill a baby in the womb. So the idea isn't that we shouldn't be in people's business. The idea is we're in the business of being in people's business. (laughs) Put that on Facebook. It's my business to be in your business. That's my business. Now you may say, well, I don't want something like that. Go back to the first part of my message. I'll give you three brochures here today after service. I'm not going to be nosy or meddling. The Bible says there's a difference between making a disciple and being nosy and meddling. Meddling has to do with how you spend your money or what kind of clothes you wear or what you like to do in your free time. That's that's none of my business. That's true. That's none of my business. But it is my business, husbands, how you treat your wives. It is my business, moms and dads, how you raise your children. It is my business on how you claim to be a Christian, whether or not you live like a Christian. Those things are my business. That's your business, actually. You're supposed to be in the business of now teaching these things. Because remember, we've read the end of the book, haven't we, Matthew? We've read Matthew 28 before in here, haven't we? And it says, now I commission you to go into all the world, making disciples, doing what? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that means we're supposed to start at the end. 
That means I'm not coming to Matthew chapter 5 as a novice and just saying, well, I didn't know these things. I'm supposed to come to Matthew chapter 5 going, I've already been preached to about these things, and now it's my turn to learn them to preach to others. Because why would I be reading Matthew chapter 5 if I hadn't already become a Christian or at least interested in what these teachings have to say? Now, you may be a noob and like a child and maybe literally never have read them, but like most of us, we opened the Bible after we became a Christian. Are most people like that? Like you gave your heart to Jesus, you were, you know, on your way to hell and somebody witnessed to you or, or you, you were a backslider and you came back to Christ and then you cracked open that Bible again. So you're coming already kind of at the end of the story. You're already coming believing Jesus is Lord, his teachings have changed your life. And so when we read about this and his messages, we're now not supposed, I mean, it's, it's supposed to go to us, obviously, but we're not supposed to let it stop with us. It's supposed to go through us to the people around us. I'm going to say it like this. God's messages are supposed to come to us and then to go through us. Amen. Are you ready for this? The Beatitudes are a Latin word for the blissful attitudes of happy people. Are you ready to learn the eight attitudes of happy people? This is true happiness. Blessings come with emotional happiness. That means your face should be experiencing what you say your soul is having right now. Your face should have some joy if you say your spirit has some joy. Amen? You, you, you should let your face know what your heart is thinking, in other words. And it's the, it's the opposite is true, too. When we see what your face is going through, we can only imagine what your heart's going through if you're having a bad day. I'll read through them, and then I'll just comment on each one of them. There's eight of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it continues on. It's a double blessing for number eight. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Everybody say blessed to be a blessing. Amen. The first blessing for a great life, a blissful life, a happy life is to be poor in spirit because you get the kingdom of heaven. We humble ourselves and we say, God is great, I am not. God is rich, I am poor. God is strong, I am weak. God is wise, I am foolish. We come empty and we get the greatest treasure of all, the kingdom of heaven. That's why there's no excuse for anyone to go to hell. Because God doesn't save the rich in spirit, he saves the poor in spirit. And the rich in spirit are really self-deceived because they're prideful. So for you to say, I don't need salvation, you'll never get it because you said you don't need it. And by that, you'll suffer eternity in hell. But those who come willingly and say, I need it, I need it, but I have nothing to give to pay for it. God says, that's okay, my son paid for it in full. Jesus is paying the price for us. So we come poor in spirit and we leave rich in him. Literally, the Bible says that in Corinthians, that he became poverty and poor for us, that we might experience the riches and the blessings of heaven. 
The next thing that we learned are blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's two good times to mourn in life. One, over your sin and the wrong that you've done to others, and when you are hurting because hurt has been done to you. Both of those times, God promises you comfort. The Bible makes a distinguishment between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Depressive, worldly sorrow will never be comforted because your heart is not looking towards Christ. If you ever find yourself in an in a ungodly sorrow, in a depressive state, it's not that God doesn't love you. Don't trust your feelings. Trust the word and then turn your heart towards God and he will take away your tears. But you have to understand that because some people say, well, I've cried and I've never been comforted. How, how is the scripture true? It's because you have a worldly, a, a godless sorrow. Godly sorrow, the Bible says, is always comforted. So that means if you've lost somebody that you've loved and you're hurting, you come with your tears to Jesus and you will notice that your heart will be comforted. Is there anybody here that's been hurt in life, came with their tears to Jesus and have been healed? Because he says he heals the brokenhearted, doesn't he? Has there been anybody here that knows that you've sinned against God or sinned against others and you have cried in repentance and God has touched and healed your heart and said, you are free, you are changed, you're never the same again. Amen. That is what he's speaking about there. He said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The meek are not weak. Remember that. Weakness is not, meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. It's the humble that will inherit the earth. Now, notice this right here. There's a bit of sedition here. There's something going on that's going to lead towards Christ's crucifixion. We start to hear now that he's talking about a kingdom. What was placed above his head? What? King of the Jews. This is the beginning. You can see it in places like this. To us, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But if you're listening as a Roman soldier, what does he mean by that? Rome inherits the earth. What do you mean you're going to get the earth? See, he's teaching us his kingdom is not just ethereal in heaven as a disembodied spirit. We come down and break necks with the king. There's a battle to come. It is going to be a bloodbath. Victory will be given to the, vict- uh, the victors. We'll get the spoils. You're going to get the earth is what he's saying. So he's going, hey, be meek now. Be humble now. Come to God in humility now because you're getting the earth. God says he has the earth and all the fullness thereof. And who does he give it to? He doesn't give it to Bill Gates. The wise don't inherit the earth according to worldly wisdom. He doesn't give it to the powerful. He doesn't say the Genghis Kongs and and the Alexander the Greats will inherit the earth. He says the meek who come on their knees before their God and say, we have sinned against you in this earth, oh God, forgive us. He says, those will inherit the earth. I want everyone to hear this today. This isn't make-believe time. That's what you do to pay, you know, that's what you pay $10 to go see at a movie. This is real time. Listen to me. As real as we are standing right here and right now, those of us here who have been faithful to God will be kings and rulers over this earth for a 1,000 years. Jesus promised it. I believe it. I'm not just going to heaven to stay there. I'm coming back to rule and reign with Christ. It's seditious. It it means America doesn't win. It means every nation better get right with the God who created this earth, and you better be humble before him. 
Otherwise, you'll get cast off, the Bible says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You'll get as much righteousness as you're hungry for. If you are not hungry for righteousness, you won't get it. And that's the example I gave you last time I was with you. If I eat all this junk food and I go home to my house full, I'm not going to eat my mama's lasagna, which she made for me. I'm so happy she did. I ate it twice, you know, once it was cooked and leftovers. And how many know pasta and things like that? The leftovers always better because it marinates the sauce in there and it gets just nice and thick and it gets more form feeling, you know, I mean, because a lot of times when it comes out, it's always messy. I'll be here all day. But, but it, was, it was just beautiful. But I tell you what. When I go out fishing, sometimes I get tempted to eat all the beef jerky I can fit in my mouth, and I get tempted to eat all the peanuts and all these nuts and all these different things. If I would have come back full, I would not have been able to eat my mother's home cooking. The reason why many of you are not getting full on righteousness is because you're already feeding yourself wickedness. Your your, your spiritual stomach is full. You're going after the wrong thing. And so if you're saying to me, Pastor, I wish I could be righteous. I wish I could do it. Then get hungry for it. God puts it right back on you. So, so you could come up here and pray for it and pray for it. That shows hunger. I get it. Like, Pastor, pray for me to do the right thing. But here, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you hunger for the right thing? Are you hungry for it? And now the world puts it out there. Man, you hungry for success? You hungry? That's how they put it out in the world, don't they? I'm hungry for this, man. I get it. What about righteousness? You hungry for righteousness? You thirst for it? When I go out on the boat, which I had to do suffering for Jesus a couple days ago, to pray that I recover from my sunburn, please. Keep me in your prayers this week. So as I was suffering for Jesus two days ago in 80-degree weather on a boat, I can't drink anything and I can't eat anything because I'll get seasick. So I have to come with nothing in my stomach from the night before. It's, it's a trick that I've learned. I basically fast the whole day. When I came off that boat, imagine this, 80 degree Florida weather, I was on the boat for about four or five hours. When I came back, my mouth was so dry. Just a little bit of water was all that I could just want to put on my lips. It was just to change that, that, that dryness. But of course, you know, I just guzzled it all down. But just a little bit would have made a difference, okay? The Bible talks about that, thirst for righteousness, Even if you start with just where you're at, just a little, you start to put it on your lips. You start to put it in your life. You'll see it transform you, and then you can guzzle as much as you want. Come on, somebody. Amen, Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So that hits me right home because, man, I can be judgmental, right? Pastor can preach hard. But you know what? When I'm on Bourbon Street, when I'm preaching wherever I'm at, even here today, I better not be more judgmental than Jesus. Because if I don't love Joe, those who Jesus loves, Joe is not getting the judge. Jesus is, then the Bible says, I'll be judged by my own false standard of judgment. That's what we'll get to in the next chapter and talks about judging. And then I won't like the way my judgment feels. So you better not judge people any other way than God's way. But does that now mean it's a free-for-all because God says, do whatever you want, and I'll just take care of it when I get to heaven? No, no, no. We judge by God's word. But guess what God's word also contains? It also contains mercy in the midst of judgment. God's word also contains forgiveness in the midst of us preaching against sin. So I can't be so angry at sinners that I don't give mercy. Now apply that to your own life. You can't be so angry at your enemy that you don't give mercy. You can't be so bitter at at somebody that you don't forgive them. 
Because there's nothing in this life that you can say, I am justified in not forgiving or giving mercy. Even Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Verse 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. This is the kind of understanding we're going to get to because the end of the chapter, which we know chapters and verses were added later just to help people, you know, make their way through the scriptures. But, it, you know, it was a good way to make chapters because I think sometimes they, they do well for us to capture thoughts. Chapter 5 is going to end with be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. How can I do that? How do I do perfect? First of all, I'm already imperfect. How does something imperfect start to do perfect? How do you jump out of a hole where there is no bottom? Can you jump out of a hole where there is no bottom? <laughs> I love messing with you guys because you guys just come here to get messed with. I know. You like it, right? Because then you go say it to your friends. Can you jump out of a hole without a bottom, sir? No, because you're still falling in that hole. To jump out of a hole, you need to hit bottom, and you need to have a bottom. The Bible says all who have sinned have fallen short of the glory of God. When did you stop falling? <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> You're going to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps? Friend, you can't even pick yourself up. You're falling. Try to pick yourself up while you're skydiving. You can't. So how do we do perfect? We can't even take one step of righteousness because we're falling. We are in a fallen state. Yes, but we are still falling because we are sinful. So what does the perfection of God, the purity of heart, uh, rather, how does the perfection, how does the purity of heart come? It comes through salvation. He's basically setting you up going, you need to be pure in heart to see God, but guess what? You'll never be pure enough, so you need me. He's going to get to that later on in his life story. He's going to start pointing to himself a lot. And that's going to make a lot of people upset because they're thinking they can jump out of a hole where there is no bottom. The Jewish people are thinking they can build their tower to heaven. They can do enough good works to earn this thing. And God is showing them, you know who see God? The pure in heart do. And it doesn't matter how much you fast, your heart still's not pure. It doesn't matter how much religious works you do, your heart's still not pure. You're going to need a heart transplant. That's the only way you're going to get a pure heart. And he'll talk about that later. But I think that's beautiful because how many today have been born again and have a pure heart? So how did your heart come when you were born again, pure or impure? It, it came pure when you were born again. How did your heart come when you were born again, pure or impure? Pure. Now keep it that way. If I gave you a glass of water on a, thirst, and you're on a hot day and you're thirsty, are you going to spit in it? Are you going to have somebody else spit in it? Are you going to take some dirt and go, this is, not, this is too pure for me, guys. Let me put some dirt in here. Is that what you're going to do? Then why do we do that in our heart? I've been saved, but you know what? I'm too pure. I want to get a little sin. I want to get a little sin in my life. You know what? Nobody's perfect. Even though God now has made me perfect, I'm not going to stay perfect. I'm just going to mess this thing up as often as I can. No, the Bible is teaching us. You want to see God today? Remain in purity. The default position of the believer is a pure heart. If you say you're a believer and you don't have a pure heart and you're not perfect like your heavenly father is perfect, what gospel did you hear? The gospel of try harder, do better? Is that the one you're following right now? The gospel of try harder, do better. I put my faith in I'm going to do more and be more. Pastor, I believe in the do more and be more gospel. The more I do, the more I be. The more I do, the more I be. No, what happens when you do, 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 do? That's what happens when you keep doing. 
without God is you just have a bunch of do-do. Now, you don't do more to be more to do more to be more. You start pure. How do you start pure? By being poor in spirit. See, the one who says, I'm not pure. God, make me pure. And I'm not going to argue with you after you tell me I'm pure. That means after the day you get saved, you're not supposed to wake up in the morning and argue with God and go, well, I don't feel pure. And I don't want to live it either because I don't feel it. No, you're not supposed to argue with him. You're supposed to wake up and go, you know what? Regardless of how I feel, I am pure. And I am perfect like my heavenly father's perfect. So I'm going to do perfect. I'm not going to do to be. I'm going to be and then do. Think about that. I'm going to be then do. I don't do things to become a human being. I be a human being first. Then I can do things that a human being does. Amen? Next it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The Bible says we should make peace among enemies, from governments to our own family. We are ones who are supposed to make peace. That means we should be able to solve problems. We should be able to look at people in conflict and give them an answer. And we should be able to do it with the wisdom of God. We should be called peacemakers. And then peacemakers are called children of God. The last thing is a double blessing. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me just share this right here. I didn't know where I was going after the sermon series on the prophets, but now going into the Gospels, how many times have you heard the prophets mentioned just already in chapter 5? Have you been paying attention? Let's just go there. If you can follow along, go ahead. If not, it's all right. In Matthew chapter 1, he mentions what the prophets say about Jesus. He's going to be called Emmanuel. Then moving into chapter 2, the prophets are mentioned that he'll be born in Bethlehem, chapter 2, verse 6. Then as you continue on, it's mentioned that he'll come out of Egypt in Hosea 11.1. That's chapter 2, verse 15. Then the prophet Jeremiah is quoted in chapter 2, verse 17, about the death of the children, how they'll be mourning because they're going to try to kill Jesus. The prophets are brought up again when John the Baptist is preaching. John the Baptist is the voice of the one calling in the wilderness that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 40. We then see that Jesus uses the scriptures, the prophets, to combat Satan in chapter 4. Then the ministry of Jesus is fulfilled from what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9. That's in Matthew chapter 4. And then we continue on. And we see that Jesus says the prophets are our example. Tell me one prophet that preached Nicianity. Just tell me one. Which prophet do you want to take me to? Which one? But which one preached Christianity or preached godliness? All of them. So why is it in our culture we think that we need to have a different standard of what we're doing? How is it we have deceived ourselves to think, I need to do this differently than the prophets? Okay, yeah, Jeremiah, he was crazy. That's why he got thrown in a pit. That's not going to happen to me. I'm going to be on Oprah's show selling my book. That's going to make perfect sense. It's going to make perfect sense. Why is it we think that we're smarter than Christ and the apostles? Why is it we think that the prophets were just such backwards thinking people that we almost listen to them and go, 
Well, yeah, they deserved the persecution they got. Yeah, John the Baptist, he deserved to get his head chopped off. We're going to read that in a few more chapters, but it says already in four he's arrested. He, he deserved that because you know what? He should not have been preaching against Herod and adultery. He shouldn't have got political, man. He should have left him alone. I've actually heard preachers say that. John the ba- I've heard a preacher say John the Baptist is an example to us of what happens when we lose our head. That's what I've heard. Pastor, stay in your lane. Stay out of politics. Don't lose your head like John the Baptist. How dare he mock our, our example? The Bible says through Jesus' words, Jesus said, of people born of men, nobody's even greater than John the Baptist. But in the kingdom of God, the least is greatest than him because as far as they could go in the old covenant was right here and then their ceiling becomes our floor. But look at Jesus. He doesn't say, go out and look for trouble. Don't go out and try to provoke people purposely. But he says, you will suffer this because of me. And so what is the because of me there? It's it's the centrality of Jesus in the gospel. Whether it's people saying, I won't do business with you. If you don't say all religions are the same. Just imagine that. There's a testimony right now, I'm not going to go into details, of someone in our church that's losing a business partnership right now, a major deal, because someone saw their post on Facebook and they didn't like it and they want them to say they will not put other religions down but say they're all the same. Otherwise, the deal is off. Think about that. Are you willing to lose a deal like that? What if they came to you and said, hey, man, I looked at your Facebook, and if you want this promotion, you, you can't share your pastor's stuff, dude. That guy's crazy. Don't you know all religions are the same? Hold on just for a second. If you respect all religions, why don't you respect mine? Because here's the thing. They're tolerant of everybody except the Christians because the Christians say they're the only ones that are right. See, they want everybody else to go, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. But when the Christian goes, only God is okay, only Jesus' way is right, then they go, get rid of that guy. Get rid of that woman. We'll, we'll take the Buddhist who believes in a past life that used to be a monkey and reincarnation. Yeah, we'll take that one, but not the one over here that says Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by them. So they show their intolerance while they're being tolerant. Why don't you respect my religion that tells me to tell you all their religions are wrong? Because that's part of my religion. My part, part of my religion is to tell you that there's only one religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. So... I'm not supposed to run from those things. I'm not supposed to think it's strange. As a matter of fact, the Bible says rejoice and be glad. And it says they will say all kinds of evil against you. Oh, so that means you don't love Muslims? Never said that. So that means you don't love homosexuals? I never said that. So that means you just want them all to go to hell? Never said that. Where do you don't get this? Love sinners, hate sin. Can I make it any more clearer? Does anybody else here have a better way of saying it? If, if so, put it on Facebook and tag me in it because the simplest way I can say it is I love sinners, I hate sin. I love truth, I hate error. What's so hard about that? God gave us a moral standard. We're going to keep it. But isn't it something that after we think is the most non-controversial teachings that Jesus has to say that? Why? Because he knows he's built into that. And to these teachings, there's people who's proud, who are proud, they're not getting the kingdom. There's people who don't think they need to mourn, they're only going to laugh in life, and that's what it actually says in Luke, woe to those who are laughing now because they're going to weep one day. 
There are those here that are not meek. They're prideful. They're not going to get the earth. There are those that don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, but they do for wickedness. There are those who are not merciful. They think in their strength they're going to overpower people. There are those who are not pure because they're dirty in heart. There are those who don't love peace. They love strife, bitterness, gossip, and envy. Now the Bible says, when you encounter them, they may persecute you. See, see, little soft, nice Jesus starts to change into a real, real person here, doesn't he? He's still a loving person, but he turns into a real person. And then now as we see and we go through these notes, there's going to be salt and light. There's going to be fulfillment of the law. And now he's going to hit on their major issues. He's going to talk about their attitudes of anger, their attitudes of sexuality, the way they look at divorce, the way they look at lust, oaths rather, and the way they look at lust and the way they treat their enemies. Let's go through this quickly. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot. Can everybody look up at me, please? Do you remember last time I was here, I said, uh, like, somebody talking to me, and I'm like, you're a good for nothing. Remember when I said that? And I was like, you have value in the kingdom. Let me take back the statement, you're a good for nothing. Sometimes sassy preachers got to walk stuff back, you know. I said, but what you're saying is good for nothing. Did you know that that was biblical? And it's not only biblical, it's actually the best thing sometimes you can say is, if you don't do this right, what you're doing right now will be good for nothing. I'm going to read it again. If you lose your saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for what? Not good for anything except to be thrown out. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and the light gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your what? See your what? Good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's why I told you, if any pastor says, don't follow me, just follow Jesus, take his advice and stop following him and going to his church. Because you've just met somebody that wants an excuse to sin and keep getting your tithes and offerings. You should be able to see my good deeds. You should see them. I should see yours. The Bible commands me to have good deeds that glorify the Father. Because here's the deal. If I say I'm making you some arroz con candules, but it's bland, I didn't make it right. I had Sister Iris, your mom, come over and teach me how to do it. I still don't know all the spices she put in there. But when she started that thing off, man, she let me have a little spoonful of that spice mixture before she boiled the rice in it. Boy, it was amazing. It was flavorful. And what the Bible is saying is if you let so much of the world come into you that you don't have flavor in the world, then you are good for nothing. Think about that. That's Jesus talking. Because if we want to make this big of a bowl of rice, all those con candules, rice and beans, for, the Puerto Re- for those who don't know the Puerto Rican culture here, uh, if I want to make that big of a bowl of rice and beans, I need to have a certain amount of spices, right? But if I want to make a bigger batch, something that's huge like that, I need that much spice. And so what makes the difference is the amount of stuff you're putting in. And so here's the deal. You are salt in this world, but if the world keeps putting more of its mindset in you, more of its ways of thinking, your saltiness will not be effective. 
And what the Bible is saying, let your salt impact them. And what does salt do? It preserves. Preserve your family with your good deeds. Preserve your job and the people around your community with the things of God. And then what else does it do? It also cleanses and it takes out disease. Be used by God to purify with the salt that he's made you to be. And then the Bible says, be light. And look at it. It says, don't take your light and hide it. Let it shine. Let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That doesn't mean we take it and blast it full force in people's eyes like a spotlight. You like point this light right in your face. Nobody likes that. But think about it. When you're in a movie theater and they put on the lights, if they did it real quick, you know, your eyes would kind of hurt, right? And we would be upset about that. But if there was a fire, would it be worth it? So I even tell people, you know what? Maybe they were a little harsh to you. I get it. But aren't you glad they're trying to help you? But don't keep using that as an excuse as you get more mature. Learn how to use the light. Light the path for them. Maybe gradually turn it on a little bit. Or just go full force and see how that works for you for, you know, for a little bit. I've had to learn how to kind of do the dimmer light, you know, dim it up a little bit. But sometimes it's boop, like Bourbon Street, like it's just like, like flash that big light, you know. S-O-S, get out of here, you know, you're in sin. God have mercy. And, and a lot of the preaching that you saw us doing out there, it's from a broken heart, man. It's from a broken heart. We're broken for the people. I saw one girl out there. She was actually from Chicago, but she went to the University of Miami. Dude, her leg was all bloody. I don't know if she fell down or something. And, and, and you could tell like she had done herself up at some point in the day. But now everything in her dress and outfit was dirty and messed up. Her makeup and mascara was run. I mean, it's just she was a wreck, dude. And I tried to get her off the streets, but she was just stumbling and like, oh, I want to be here. This is my friend. And I'm like, your friend's not taking care of you right now. I'm like, you're bloody. You, you are just messed up right now. You need to get off the street. So it's with brokenness we preach to them. Let your light shine. The next thing that he says is, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter nor the least, pen, least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of God. For I tell you that unless you're righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not inherit the kingdom of heaven or not enter kingdom of heaven. He hasn't mentioned hell yet. He's about ready to, but already he's, he's given you that seditious talk, talk of rebellion. Don't be like the Jews. Don't be like the Romans, in other words, too, because he's talking about the powerful aren't going to inherit the kingdom. It's the meek. And now he comes out very clearly and tells you, if you don't learn these commands and teach them to others, you're not getting in. Right here is a pivotal point to understand about Jesus in the Old Covenant. He's not doing away with it. He's fulfilling it. Think of the Old Covenant as being first grade. Nobody could pass it. Nobody could get the ABCs right. We kept, we kept murdering. We weren't supposed to. We kept lusting. We weren't supposed to. We kept breaking all of these commands. Now Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not doing away with the first grade. I'm going to pass it, bring us into the second grade so that everything now can be fulfilled and accomplished. But by everything that I do, I want you to learn to do because if you don't learn to do these things, you're going to be worse off than the Pharisees because they knew about it but didn't do it. 
And so you just can't come to church and go, well, I know, I know. You know, I was in the Bible Belt. You know, I was in Florida. I was in Alabama stopping in all these places and preaching in some of them. Uh, one of the places I preached in Louisiana was the crawfish capital of the world, man. I mean, this was like bayou swamp country. It was really cool being with them. I came there. A girl had a cowboy hat on. Loved it, man. I just thought it was fun being there. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you're in the Bible Belt because if you do not do these things, you're just as bad off as everybody else who doesn't. The knowledge is not anything unless you add the to it. Can I hear an amen? amen? Amen. And now notice what he talks about. He's going to use this theme. You have heard, and then he's going to expand it. He's showing you, I'm not doing away with the Ten Commandments or the laws of God's moral character. I'm going to expand it into your heart. And so what we want to learn about the new covenant is it's Christ fulfilling the old and giving us the heart of the Father. The things of sacrifice, the things of priests, the things of the civil law stoning, Jesus is going to bring all of that to an end. He's going to do that by him taking all of our punishment, being the high priest, fulfilling all of the the um, the festivals and all of those things as we read through the book of Matthew. I'll be referring back to this passage. But here's the point for us today. He's going to take the commands you thought you understood, and he's going to take it so much deeper. You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. How many know you shouldn't kill somebody? Amen. But now watch what he does. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is what? angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which means empty-headed one, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Pastor, you've called people fools. You're going to hell. Go to Matthew chapter 23. Let's see if Jesus contradicted himself. How many know Jesus called people fools? Did he contradict himself? Matthew chapter 23. These are all the places I highlight in them that Jesus calls people names right here, okay? That's where he calls them names in Matthew chapter 23. What does he say to them in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 23? Matthew chapter 23, verse 17. You what? Okay, well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. What's going on? Did Jesus contradict himself? He said, don't call anybody a fool, but Jesus is calling people fools all the time. Go to the King James version of this verse. I'm an old school guy. I believe the King James contains the best manuscripts. I just read the modern versions because I think it helps explain things better. But every now and then I got to go old school. Tell me if this helps out a little bit better with this version here. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, what? Without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Isn't that something, how much a translation can make a difference? See, this more accurate translation helps us understand what Jesus is saying. He's not contradicting himself. He used the word fool himself. But what he's saying is, if you do it without a cause. Now, how many know the difference between when you have a justifiable reason to be angry or when anger has taken over? You know the difference. How many know the difference? The Bible is saying if you let your anger control you and it's not justified, you don't have a good cause, you're subject to the judgment just like a murderer. And all God's people said, amen. That's a tough one for me to hear because I get angry and I have to discern, man, am I angry with a good cause? Or am I angry without that good cause? Because the words that come out of my mouth, I'll be held accountable for. Let's go to the next one. 
The next one that we see is he's going to teach us how to handle offense. It says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So he's teaching them, in the middle of you guys doing what you do, you better not be angry and hold it against each other. Parents, would you get your children for us, please, as I try to land this big old sermon right now? I got a lot to go through. I tried to do a whole chapter. Poor pastor. I made it halfway through. How many more verses I got here? It's 47. Man, I tried so hard. Let's get the band to come up here because there's no way I can go through this whole thing. I mean, it's just, I would blah, 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 I'll just be running through this thing so fast right now. Thank you, parents, for getting your children. You're supposed to do that at 45 after, so if I ever forget, please, please remember that. Okay. How do we end this now? <laughs> when I was driving here, I really thought I could do it. Like in my head, I was like, I can do the whole chapter. Adam, I could tell by that look, never believed I could do it. Adam has had to come bail me out so many times. Okay. We're going to end with our anger issues. Let's end with that. Let me see. Can I even go to the next one? Yeah, let's read verse 25. We'll, we'll read about offense, and then we'll do adultery and all of that. Yeah, court and things there. Settle matters quickly with your adversary when he's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Isn't it something? I mean, honestly, we can see how Jesus could preach for three days and not even feed anybody. That's what he did, right? I mean, he's not even, like, worried about them eating. Let's keep going, guys. You guys okay? People are falling out. You're okay? Not, just get, sit them up. Sit them up. We're hungry, Pastor. You'll be fine. And then he messes with them, right? Like, at the end of three days, they have not gotten anything to eat. He looks to his disciples. Okay, Adam, you feed them now. And they're like, Jesus, we can't, what? Why'd you put this on us? We can't feed them. We don't have enough money. It would take too long. And then Jesus just sets them up, and he's like, well, get what you got, you know, and then they bring the food and he multiplies it. I just think that's funny when we find ourselves in similar situations. Let's put together what we've learned. We've learned the attitudes of a blessed life. We've learned that if we preach them correctly, we should expect persecution. We've learned that we're salt and light and that we shouldn't hide our salt or hide our light. We should be influential. If not, we're good for nothing. Just like a lamp under a bowl is good for nothing. We learn that Jesus did not come to take away the commands. Jesus came to fulfill them. And the first kind of three we get right here have to do with anger, offense, and going to court. How would I apply this to the end of the chapter where it says, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect? I would end it pretty much the way I was going to end the whole chapter. So let's scroll to the bottom, please. Christianity is not moral deism. Moral deism is that there's a God, we don't know much about him, he's out there somewhere, and what he wants you to do is just be a good person. So that's a big term right there, moral deism. I hope you get that. Christianity is not just trying to do better for a God way out there that you hope one day to please and be saved by. Christianity is about spiritual perfection that one can only receive by the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. So as we looked at these things, especially ones like pure in heart, especially ones that talk about, you know, not being angry at the wrong time. 
be merciful. Don't you see that that's impossible in your own strength? It really is. How do you clean yourself if your hands are stained with tar? How do you fix yourself if you're broken? How do you give yourself a heart transplant? Number one, you can't open yourself up that way. And number two, what heart do you put in? You, you got to go somewhere outside of yourself. And so the Beatitudes are not here to just give us wishful thinking. They're actually to teach us what spiritual perfection looks like. Do you know that they can't draw a perfect circle, but we all imagine that there is one? Think about that. That no matter how much they try to draw a perfect circle, the more you zoom into it, you zoom into it, you zoom in, you see that it's not perfectly round. And yet we can all imagine a perfect circle. Why is it we can imagine perfection, but we can't do perfection? You could imagine yourself not getting angry the time you did. You could imagine yourself being nicer. You can imagine yourself being more merciful. You can imagine yourself, do you, you can put yourself right in your imagination and go, two weeks ago when I lost it and cussed somebody out, yeah, I didn't have to do that. I'm imagining right now me walking out, saying God bless you and moving about my day. Why is it we can imagine it, but we can't do it? Watch this. Because we were made for perfection with God. So how does spiritual perfection come? And make sure you come next week. We'll, we'll get through more of it. But it comes at the very beginning by admitting we're poor in spirit. Think of those two verses as a bookend. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all of that stuff in between, it's sandwiched in. So how do I get it? By admitting I'm not it. And then when I am made it, then I say I can do it by faith, whether I feel it or not. So are you perfect? If you're saved, are you perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect? Is your heart pure? Are you merciful? Are you all of those things? Yes. Whether you feel it or not, yes, you are. So what do you do now? You do perfect because you were made perfect. Now because God has made you rich in the kingdom, you have something to give the world, mercy. You have something to be like, meek. You have something to hunger for, righteousness. You have something to do when you're persecuted, rejoice. You have an assignment to be salt, to be light. All of those things you could never be on your own. Can you make a chemical compound called salt? No, you have to, could you make it out of nothing? Of course not. Could you make light? We don't even know what light is, by the way. The smartest of physicists still don't even know what light is. And yet God says, you are that. You are that because he made you that. Now live like it. Be perfect. Notice the word there, be perfect. How can you be anything other than what you are? by being in Christ and getting what who he is. And from your being, you can do those things. Amen. Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus. Thank you for your patience today. Praise God. Altar workers, would you come please?
Let's, let's end by praying two things. Number one, if you need to be born again, if you need to be made perfect in the image of God, we're going to invite you to come up here. And then number two, if you need help doing the things that we were learning about today, come up and learn to be and to do. And especially for those who deal with anger, because that's only the real one we got to today was anger and offense. Make sure you get prayer for that, but you got a hunger for it. Amen. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for everybody coming. As we prepare to end first service, I ask that you will help us to be who you've called us to be and to do what you've called us to do. As the second service folks start coming in, because we're going to start with the second service right now, before we dismiss, if you need prayer, I want you to come up. But if you want to stay where you're at, that's fine. But listen, no one leave out here until you've searched your heart over the attitudes of the kingdom and over your temper. At least start there. But some of you want prayer. Come on up. Receive prayer to be perfect and to do what God called you to do. We'll dismiss formally first service in just a moment. But let's worship and let second service transition in with us. Thank you for coming. Don't go anywhere. Pray. Pray through these things we've learned. I'll build my life on you, Jesus. Make us like you. If you struggle with anger, 